Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. The transition from home to college campus isn't an easy one. For many young people, the start of their college careers also means the start of living on their own, setting their own schedules, managing their own time, all without a support network. Many students have mental health challenges during this transition, but not all colleges are adequately prepared to address these challenges. Today on Where We Live, we talk about a growing need for more mental health support on campus. We talk about what colleges can do to better aid students and where students can go for help. If you're a student or a parent of a student, we want to hear from you. What mental health resources does your college offer? Is it enough? Joining us now is uh, Sarah Brown, news editor at the Chronicle of Higher Education. Thanks so much for being here, Sarah. Thanks for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We will be talking about themes of mental health and suicide today. This program might not be suitable for all listeners. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is at 1-800-273-8255. The Crisis Text Line is a texting service for emotional crisis support. Text HELLO to 741-741. It is free, available 24-7, and confidential. Uh, Sarah, when it comes to mental health on campus, what are you hearing? So I figured we could start by just describing the scale of mental health concerns that we're talking about. Um, One of the best uh, sources of this is the Healthy Minds Study, which surveys tens of thousands of students across the country every year. The best, the most recent data that we have from them shows that more than 40% of college students screen positive for some form of depression. Um, About 40% of students screen positive for some form of anxiety. About 25% say they've taken psychiatric medication in the past year. And then more than 15% said they've had suicidal ideation in the past year. And so that just gives you a sense of the scale. Now, those are not diagnoses. They're sort of screening positive on a survey. Um, But what I can say is that this is not a new issue. Um, You know, this is not something that has skyrocketed in the past year or anything, Um, Student mental health concerns have been rising for the past, you know, really 10, 15 years, if not even longer. And then these concerns, I think, were really exacerbated by the pandemic, by, you know, the onset of loneliness, isolation and stress related to that. Um, And then what we're also seeing is that colleges are really struggling to meet students' demand for treatment. So none of this is a new issue, but it's a serious one. It's not a brand new issue for sure. And this is certainly not the first time I'm hearing this. Um, And there has been a lot of, or I don't want to say a lot of, but there has been some serious high profile cases uh, related to this. Can you describe what happened at uh, Stanford University and other cases you may be hearing about around the country? Yeah, so the Stanford University case um, involves Katie Meyer. She was the star Stanford goalie. um, And she died by suicide this year. It was a case that drew a lot of national attention. And 
per a lawsuit that her family just filed against Stanford, she was under, she was going through a disciplinary process at Stanford. And what her parents have alleged is that this disciplinary process was very rigid, very inhumane, was um, basically telling her that, you know, your life could be over, your degree could be withheld, and your application to law school could be, um, you know, suspended. And, and so she really felt like, you know, her life was kind of ending. And so she, she took her own life. Um, it was a really, really tragic case. And I think what we see with student athletes and, and students at elite colleges, especially like Stanford, as well as Yale, there's this um, struggle with the pressure to be perfect, to meet these high expectations set by others and set by themselves. There's no room for failure. It sort of feels like no one else is struggling as much as you are. Um, for other students, you know, they're experiencing life stressors that that really disrupt their ability to focus on being a college student. You know, potentially a, a single parent might be raising kids and working one to two jobs to get by. And so there's kind of a range of um, stressors that we see college students experiencing. And so none of this is new, especially with the high expectations. And you mentioned earlier, this is this is um, this is something we've been hearing a lot lately. So what sort of mental health resources are usually available on campus? So typically, if you, uh, colleges have most colleges have campus counseling centers and there are a range of resources that are offered. So, you know, there is therapy, kind of traditional therapy sessions. Um, often it is limited. Uh, colleges will often say that we provide short-term treatment for students. And so often students will be limited to maybe eight sessions a semester, eight sessions a year, or a certain number of sessions during their time enrolled as a student. And so it's not necessarily ongoing therapy. Um, it's it's sort of time, it's limited by the number of sessions or the time. Um, Campus counseling centers also offer workshops on topics like stress management, how to uh, how to study more effectively. There are group therapy um, opportunities as well on specific concerns. Um, so like maybe LGBTQ students would have a group therapy opportunity. And increasingly, one thing we're seeing is that colleges are trying to kind of supplement what they offer in the counseling center with kind of digital online type mental health resources. So teletherapy apps, uh, mindfulness apps, um, you know, self-guided cognitive behavioral therapy apps. We're kind of seeing a range of things. But I, you know, I think what we're also seeing is that students are calling for more treatment than colleges have traditionally offered or that colleges are willing to offer. And so there's this tension between what students want and what colleges are currently offering. And so it sounds like there's resources offered, but if a student is struggling, it can be difficult for them to take care of themselves and try to reach out and gain access to these resources. So it's great that it's there, but students are still struggling. Why is that? Yeah, and, and often what we see in surveys is that students are not aware that these resources exist. So colleges might have a whole menu of things on offer, but students don't often know about them. Um, and it's it's really tricky to figure out how to reach students before they hit a moment of crisis. Um, but it's it's obviously a top issue for for um, for colleges. Um, and you know, I think what's difficult too is that. Uh, colleges, again, have traditionally said we are a 
short-term, we, do, we offer short-term therapy. We are not a medical facility. We're not a psychiatric clinic, but students are saying, you know, we want more from you. And um, there's this sort of tension again, where, you know, colleges are saying, you know, we do short-term therapy here and then we refer you off campus. And students are saying, you know, we are, we, we want more from our institution. And um, it's it's a real challenge because the the demand for therapy is so high that colleges are often not able to meet it. It's leading to long wait lists at counseling centers for therapy. Um, there's no easy answers here, but there's certainly a, a major debate over what mental health resources colleges are offering and sort of how to best reach students with them. And we're going to try to take a call here from Patty at East Lyme. Patty, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, so this was several years ago, and um, so my child went to UConn and, uh, you know, experiencing anxiety and depression and um, went to the counseling center, had a good connection with the counselor there, and, um, you know, ended up, long story short, okay, this was a continuing issue. It wasn't just an academic issue and um, ended up in the hospital. So what I found out, because, you know, when a, when a child, of course, is over 18 and hasn't signed any kind of release, they can't call you no matter what the issue is, pretty much. What I found out from calling the center after all this happened was that they're to be seen, you know, maybe like 10 times, 10 sessions, and then supposed to be referred out, and that didn't happen. And that's a problem. So I know there's not enough mental health um, providers, et cetera, et cetera. However, it's important for whoever is being seen at a counseling center, at a university, college, whatever, that they're referred out when they're in crisis. I want to thank Patty for calling in and sharing your story. Sarah, I know you're not in the co- in a campus space per se, but can you respond to that just based on your experience? Yeah, I mean, one thing I heard was this issue where a counseling center was supposed to sort of make that referral off campus and it didn't happen. Um, that's something that we hear quite frequently from students that, you know, there there are frankly students who fall through the cracks because there are just so many students who are asking for help from the counseling center and there's just not enough staff to accommodate them. A growing number of campus counseling centers are hiring case managers who basically have the responsibility to help students get help off campus and make sure that they're able to follow through with that, um, make sure they have what they need. But that's not at every institution. And so there are a lot of campuses where that doesn't happen. I mean, speaking from my own personal experience, you know, this was 10 years ago on a college campus, but I went and tried to seek treatment at the counseling center and they immediately referred me out. And and basically what they did is they gave me some phone numbers on a piece of paper and said, have a nice day. And that was pretty much it. There was no follow-up, no follow-through. And I think for students who are you know, we're talking about students who are, you know, 18, 19 years old, have no idea how to make their own medical appointments necessarily. They have no idea how insurance works. It can be a really difficult thing to actually get help off campus. And then, of course, there's the issue where there's not even enough providers off campus in many cases. So there's a lot of challenges with making sure that students are getting the treatment that they need and that they're not falling through the cracks. 
I think that's a challenge for a lot of us, actually, let alone a college student who's, like you said, 18, 19 years old. And it sounds like you know, referring out seems to be a, a challenging aspect as a part of this. Is it a barrier um, from your perspective? And what are some of the cost insurance uh, concerns from college students? Yeah, I mean, the the if you're on a college campus, uh, you know, and you're seeking treatment at the counseling center, that's usually free of charge. The challenge when you go off campus is that um, you obviously, what if you don't have insurance or you don't have um, insurance that is taken by local providers? Many local mental health providers don't even take insurance anymore. So what if you can't even afford the treatment? There are a lot of challenges with this. Now, that is part of the reason that colleges are more often turning to these, um, what I described earlier as these teletherapy apps. And so um, in some cases, what you'll have is, you know, colleges will basically purchase access for all of their students to a teletherapy app. And the idea is that you are able to log on and immediately get connected with a therapist. Now, this is a great solution for getting students treatment quickly. It's not a long-term solution. It's not like you can log onto the app and see the same therapist every time. It's more of sort of a, I need something, I need help right now. Um, but it, it's one option that colleges are kind of turning to more often in order to help students um, in ways that aren't just, you know, sending them off campus with some phone numbers. And what do we know about the rate of students dropping out of college because of mental health? Yeah, so what we know is that, you know, among students who are pursuing a four-year degree for the first time, so, you know, you're talking your traditional under uh, 18 to 22-year-old undergraduates, about 25% total will drop out without earning a degree. Um, and we've also learned that mental health is now one of the top reasons that students consider dropping out of college. One recent survey, um, actually from earlier this year, from Gallup and from the Lumina Foundation, found that three quarters of students who had considered dropping out in the previous six months cited emotional stress as the reason. So there's absolutely a connection between mental health and academic success. Um, you know, one study found that 30% of college students who are experiencing depression will drop out of college without treatment. Um, and so it's a really, it's a major concern and, you know, um, the Healthy Mind study, which I mentioned earlier, actually has a return on investment calculator that sort of shows this connection between um, mental health and academic uh, success, basically showing that if a counseling center treats 500 students, that can prevent 30 students from dropping out and result in, you know, potentially more than a million dollars of additional tuition revenue for the college. So, Basically, what that's trying to show is that it's a win-win. Investing in mental health resources isn't just the right thing to do. It's actually going to benefit both the college and the student. Um, and so, you know, there's absolutely a, a, a major connection between, between the two. So I think related to that, um, can colleges force students to take a leave of absence? They can. Um, college administrators will will tell you that such cases are really rare, that more often these leaves, these medical leaves are voluntary, and that they do actually help a lot of students stay in school while they are getting treatment for whatever they're struggling with. Um, and then in those rare cases, uh, involuntary leave, where they're forced to leave <laughs> campus, colleges will often argue that it's in students' best interest to leave school for a little while. Um, but, 
it's complicated, right? I mean, in an investigation that the Chronicle published earlier this year, we looked at involuntary leave policies. We talked to experts about them. Uh, many experts told us that involuntary leave doesn't necessarily help a student recover. Um, and medical leaves can feel, these involuntary leaves can feel really harsh. I mean, some colleges bar students from campus uh, while they're on leave. And so it can kind of feel like you're all of a sudden cut off from the life that you once had. Um, you know, we often also heard from students, um, and this is a concern that we, we've seen recently at Yale specifically, we heard from students who, who were terrified that the slightest mention of distress could get them kicked off campus, could, could lead to that involuntary leave. Um, you know, some campus policies actually describe self-harm as a reason that students could face discipline. So these policies say that students basically have a responsibility not to harm themselves or others. And so some students have this perception that colleges see their mental health concerns as a liability. Um, and now figuring out the right answer in these cases isn't easy by any means, but there's absolutely this tension between what students want and what they think is best for them and then what the college thinks is best for them. And then there's also this major issue that at some colleges, especially more elite colleges like Yale, there's a really high barrier to re-entry and to getting readmitted to school and getting back on track. So that's a challenge as well. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shin. That was Sarah Brown, news editor at the Chronicle of Higher Ed. Sarah, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming up next, we hear from Jennifer Rothman from the National Alliance on Mental Illness and from Dr. Nick Pinkerton, Associate Dean of Counseling Services and Wellbeing at Southern Connecticut State University. If you're going to school right now or if you're a parent of a student, we want to hear from you. Does your university offer mental health support? What does it look like? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. 
Suicide is the second leading cause of death in college students. Today, we're hearing about mental health resources on campus and what colleges are doing to increase access to those resources. If you or someone you know is in crisis, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is at 1-800-273-8255. Joining us now on Zoom is Jennifer Rothman, Senior Manager of Youth and Young Adult Task Force based in North Carolina for NAMI, or the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and Dr. Nick Pinkerton. He's the Associate Dean of Counseling Services and Wellbeing at Southern Connecticut State University. Thanks both of you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Jennifer, can you talk about the challenges for those going off to college for the first time? You know, For them, it's facing new in- independence for the first time. Sure. Yes, a lot of what we hear from the youth and young adults that we work with is that it's just this brand new world that they're stepping into, stepping away from their comfort zone, their support systems, an environment that they know well. And really, like you said, that independence, just this new space for them to be who they want to be, make their own decisions. And in some cases, you know, deal with those consequences that they wouldn't normally uh, be as aware of. So it's 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 a lot and exciting, but can also cause a lot of nerves and stress and, and some anxiety for sure. I mean, I can still remember my first day. I don't need to go back to that. But um, <laughs> so it's, it's a new experience. It's challenging already. But can you talk about the uniqueness now of going to school after going through a pandemic? Sure. You know, we, I think a lot of us are starting to, you know, really get used to being back out in the world again. Most aren't worrying as much, um, but there's still that lingering fear that, you know, at any moment, maybe we'll, we'll be asked to step back into being at home, quarantined, not being around people again. And I think in some ways, it's really turned us into a little bit more of introverts, versus being used to being out and and socializing and not worrying about the repercussions of maybe being in a room full of people and wondering you know are you are you going to be getting sick or is this going to lead to me having to be out of class for a while so there is definitely still that anxiousness around the pandemic and just not really wanting to have to go back to to that life of you know, class on the computer only and and not and not being around people. It, it really led to a lot of loneliness and just loss of, of feeling connected. So with, with that feeling, um, do you mind responding to what we heard earlier from Sarah Brown, who is the news editor at the Chronicle of Higher Ed? Uh, what sort of mental health resources are usually available on campus and is it enough? Sure. You know, Sarah mentioned that while definitely there's there's therapy available to students that the access to that therapy can sometimes be tough in that there's long wait time. So many colleges have put together different workshops, uh, trainings, like she had mentioned, you know, stress management, trying to figure out, um, you know, meditation styles, teaching different coping skills, Again, some group therapy has been available and really 
you know, they're starting to refer out to some community resources as well and, you know, some support from outside of the campus. We also heard from a listener, Patty, from East Lyme, who shared with us the difficulties of of being referred out. Can you talk about how hard it is to find a therapist or even if that's a barrier in of itself? Sure. I think I I know when the caller mentioned that their student was supposed to be referred out, automatically I thought, well, gosh, there's another wait time or there might not be any therapist close by that would have been able to take this student in in a timely manner. I think we're seeing it everywhere. Uh, And even if you can get in to see somebody, it can take a lot of time to really find someone that you can connect with and, and feel comfortable enough to really talk about these issues and feel like you're getting somewhere and, and really being able to address your symptoms and come up with a treatment plan. Uh, Are we seeing more students take semesters of uh, medical leave and what does that look like? Are there additional challenges with that because it's disrupting their routine or even stigma because they're withdrawing? Sure. We we are hearing more of these medical leaves. And, you know, part of me is just so excited to hear that students are putting their mental health first. But on the other side of that, unfortunately, we're hearing, uh, like Sarah had mentioned, that they're cut off from campus, they're cut off from the world that they knew and, and had started to build for themselves. And when you're taken out of yet another uh, comfortable space, you know, you left home and then you you were on campus building your life and now you have to leave again. And in many cases, the students are going to go back home to be with their support system, their family. But then how can you focus on recovery and your mental health when you're worrying about Am I going to be able to be reinstated? What is that going to look like? What if they don't accept me? And you're not having communication with that university to really support you and tell you, yes, take your time that you need. You will be welcomed back with open arms when you're feeling your best and able to take this on again. That what you just described is so much, and I'm—I mean, I'm having my own flashbacks of my college life, and um, and I can't imagine what students have to go through today, especially since the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of what are not new issues. Um, why do you think schools are pushing students to take leave rather than giving them the help that they might need? I think there's a lot of different reasons. Some. I do think might be some liability. They they are afraid that students might harm themselves or others. I think they don't have the resources to be able to provide the right supports and treatment to these students. And really, it's just this, you know, wishing that there was a, a magic recipe for for being able to help these students when really. I think in some ways the university hopes that they're able to get the help that they need if they're sent off of campus, which they might see as one of the major stressors for what the students are going through and not as much as, you know, this is my routine, this is my structure, if this gets taken away from me, it's just going to exasperate uh, what I'm going through already. And Nick, you are on the ground. You see students at Southern Connecticut State University. Can you describe what your work looks like there? Yeah, absolutely. I think so many good points have been made uh, thus far in this conversation. Uh, I think certainly I would echo that we're seeing students uh, coming in with a number of different 
types of struggles, anxiety and depression on the rise. Uh, we're seeing social anxiety and social avoidance and also loneliness on the rise. We're seeing the ability to sort of navigate and assert yourself to ensure that you're getting the care that you need, that you're seeking that support is also uh, uh, down. Just the level of sort of student disengagement more broadly from not just uh, the mental health front or, or, or seeking support in that way, but maybe also even academic support is down. And so it becomes uh, challenging in a variety of ways to know how to best support students. You know, I devote my life to the work of, uh, of supporting students, and I'm so grateful to be able to have the impact uh, that I do. And, uh, you know, at the same time, it, it, is, it is a real challenge to figure out how do we scale public health solutions on our campuses in a way that's really going to going to create the change that we all want to see. So it sounds like from what we can hear today is there are different supports um, on different college campuses. So what are some of the supports uh, typically available to students at Southern? Sure. So similar to what was described uh, more broadly nationally, certainly we have individual counseling. Uh, that's our most utilized service. We also have groups, a variety of groups uh, that are, are meant to really bring students together. And I, I would just put in a plug for our group therapy and that one of the biggest uh, concerns that we're seeing with students with social anxiety and avoidance, with that feeling of disconnection socially, uh, is the fear that, that they're not going to be understood or they're going to be judged by others. And the idea that they could be in a group experience and not only hear from a clinician, but hear from their peers that what they're experiencing is understandable, that um, there's hope and that there's, there's resources. There's something incredibly powerful about that. And at the same time, it takes a certain level of vulnerability uh, to be able to join a group. And so we sometimes have difficulty promoting our groups when given the choice, often our students are, are preferring uh, clinicians in an individual context rather than joining the groups. Um, we have outreach and uh, programs that uh, let students know about our services, try to decrease stigma and encourage help seeking as well as consultation and crisis management as well. And you mentioned group therapy. What about peer-to-peer -peer counseling? I'm hearing that that seems to be sort of an area that's expanding. Yes. And um, I, I think for some good reasons, I think certainly to the extent that we can empower our students, and I would say even more broadly, our, our entire community, our staff and our faculty, to understand how to promote the conditions of mental health and well-being, rather than just focusing on clinicians, focusing on the conditions. How do we create an environment of care and support? How do we encourage authentic conversation and support from one another? The, the fact that we can do this, uh, there's so much promise in it. And we are really working hard on trying to upskill our entire community and certainly our students as they feel that they can, you know, they, they understand one another, they can speak to one another, they can, they can do this. But sometimes our skills, uh, these skills of, of listening and of uh, engaging uh, with a student in a supportive way, these are skills that can be practiced, they can be honed, they can be improved. And I think to the extent we can encourage that and amplify that, it's all for the good. 
So that sounds like a part of the, your plan on creating a, a safe space for students and, and everyone who wants to seek help. Um, is it robust enough or are you looking to make it better? Uh, in terms of our services more broadly or in terms of our peer support services? I'm going to talk about both. Sure. So, I mean, I, I think I'm interested uh, in expanding our services broadly across the board. I think in terms of our peer support services, I think upskilling our community is a huge piece. We are, for example, doing QPR trainings, which is a suicide prevention certification, nationally recognized, evidence-based. Uh, we are doing mental health first aid. And so far, we've had uh, well over 100 uh, of our community members be uh, trained in these, and we're offering those for free. We are uh, at the same time, uh, you know, making sure that we're encouraging our, our students to recognize when students need more than just that peer support. At what point is it clear that they need to be connected with a professional for support and how do we make sure that that, uh, that that happens? And so that's a big part of it as well, recognizing that and then encouraging students to connect when, when they need that. And so uh, I'm, we're very fortunate and we're also very strategic in the way that we use our uh, resources here. We've got uh, a, an amazing group of clinicians and staff that work on, on supporting students. We don't have a wait list. Um, uh, but it is a growing challenge to meet the, the demand uh, for counseling. More students seemingly every day are coming in and really requesting and, and, and wanting to speak to our clinicians and get the support uh, from them. And real quickly, can you talk about some of the unique challenges that your students at Southern face? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the unique challenges for our students at Southern is that so many um, are uh, you know, low income status, first generation students who are dealing with just a plethora of life circumstances that you know uh, make it very difficult. There's been a disproportionate impact on many of our students in terms of the pandemic, in terms of uh, how uh, their lives have been affected in so many ways. And so working multiple jobs, trying to manage and take care of their family, trying to deal with the financial and uh, insecurity, food insecurity, while at the same time uh, going to college and navigating this experience for the first time, um, it's a lot. And so trying to support our students who um, have some limited resources and, and supports uh, available as they as they try to take on all of this is a big part of what I think we are are working towards and and trying to support our students here at Southern. And we're going to take another call from Kurt from East Hampton. Kurt, what do you have to share with us? Oh, hi, good morning. Uh, first off, I'm an attorney, and I listen to this conversation from an attorney's perspective. Now, I'm thinking of all the recent uh, shootings, particularly in schools. And then I think of the colleges and universities duty to their students, duty of care. Now, I realize the whole issue, and I'm just kind of curious how, from the colleges and universities perspective, what duties do they owe the students? And, and thanks, Kurt, for uh, calling and sharing that question with us. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to respond to that? Sure. So, you know, unfortunately, we are hearing about <clears throat> shootings that are taking place 
at schools and it's it's just this continued flow of students who are feeling these different mental health symptoms, they don't feel supported, they don't know where to turn. And I think that's really, you know, one of the fears that that liability that we've been speaking about, that the campuses would rather, you know, these students take a break than, you know, God forbid, have an event that, you know, could cause such, you know, chaos on campus and affect the entire student community for sure. And Nick, we got about a minute left, but do you mind responding to that as well? Sure. Yeah, I think that we we think about this every day. Uh, certainly on campuses, we have uh, meetings ongoing, things like behavioral intervention teams. Typically, these are happening in the background where we bring a variety of folks together to identify and figure out how to best support students who may be at risk. And um, there's there's an, in, an incredible uh, amount of efforts made to support and mitigate any issues before they rise to that level. Well, thanks, Kurt, for your call. And we're hearing from Jennifer Rothman, Senior Manager of Youth and Young Adult Task Force for NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, and from Dr. Nick Pinkerton, Associate Dean of Counseling Services and Wellbeing at Southern Connecticut State University. Coming up next, we hear from a student at UConn and hear about her mental health journey. We want to hear from you, too. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're talking about mental health on college campuses today and how universities can better support their students. If you or someone you know is in crisis, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is at 1-800-273-8255. The Crisis Text Line is a texting service for emotional support. Text HELLO to 741-741. It's free, available 24-7 and confidential. Our next guest is Alieska Tilly, a graduate student at UConn who sought mental health support at the university. Hi, Alieska. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, thanks for having me. You can um, also, oh, sorry, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Alieska, can you give us a little background about your own mental health journey? Yeah, so um, I started struggling with my mental health journey um, towards the end of middle school. I didn't realize that quite at the time um, until I got to high school and found out what depression was and what anxiety was and realized looking back that that's what I had been struggling with. Um, And in my early high school years, I started struggling with panic attacks um, and self-harm and the only reason I had found out what I was struggling with was actually through the internet. Um, A lot of social media platforms at the time were coming out um, when I was about 12, my um, into my freshman year of high school. 
Um, and so that was kind of a pro and con for me. I found out what I was struggling with um, and found a community of people who were also struggling. Um, but the internet can have some pretty uh, big repercussions um, with it as well. So I was feeling pretty alone in my struggle. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school uh, that I received uh, private therapy um, and I was able to drive myself and pay for some of my therapy sessions. Uh, and I carried that into going into my freshman year of college, um, which I attended Southern for my undergraduate degree in psychology. Um, and when I got to Southern, it was difficult to see my therapist I had been seeing because at the time telehealth was not really a common practice. Um, up until the pandemic, we really didn't utilize that option often. So I would have had to drive an hour to still continue my therapy services, um, which was not possible. Uh, most college uh, freshmen and even sophomores uh, cannot have a car on campus at most um, universities. I didn't have a car at the time. Um, so it was very difficult to continue that resource. Um, luckily, though, Southern does offer free mental health services. Unfortunately, though, I didn't know that they were offered at the time. Um, I wasn't aware of what um, services were on campus, um, and so I really didn't seek help. Um, I had been doing better from the therapy that I was going to, um, but had I known that the resources were there, I probably really would have utilized them. Uh, and then I was in undergrad at the time of the pandemic, um, so I kind of lived through that experience, which made school much more difficult, um, and my mental health started to decline. Um, at the time we were home and those telehealth therapy options were available. So I was able to reconnect with my therapist. Uh, I did graduate Southern in um, 2021 and I now attend UConn Graduate School. I'm earning my master's um, degree in social work. Um, and the difference now going to UConn is that I go to Hartford, um, which is a satellite um, campus for UConn. So we don't actually have direct mental health services on this campus. Um, so it's made it again, quite difficult to receive those um, services here. And I think you've been listening to the conversation talking about the different resources available in, on different campuses, and you have now experiences on, on two campuses. Um, can you talk about the barriers a bit more on, on trying to get those services, or how are you finding out that these resources are available? Um, Absolutely. So I think there is slightly more awareness around what resources are available since we have gone through the pandemic. Um, there's kind of been this uprise in understanding of mental health issues. A lot of people are now understanding that there's something that anyone can struggle with um, and that they're very real um, and very serious. And so there is a lot more awareness around mental health, I think, in general, and a lot more conversation. And I think that momentum should be um, continued. Some of the barriers that I've experienced um, and that I know a lot of other uh, peers have experienced is um, the issue with the concept of whether or not mental health um, services on campuses are actually free. Um, so for instance, at Southern, um, the, the services actually are free. Um, they don't require insurance. So you can go and receive um, mental health services at Southern, whereas UConn um, actually goes through insurance or students pay um, upfront at their appointments. Um, if 
UConn doesn't take your insurance. Uh, so that's been something that's really difficult. And insurance is a huge barrier, especially for the young demographic, because there's a lot of people who, as was mentioned earlier, don't want their parents maybe be, uh, to know that they're going to therapy. Um, they don't want it to show up on their insurance. Um, if they're using family insurance, which both co college students are considering, they can stay on their insurance well into their 20s. Um, and so there's a huge barrier when we're going through insurance and utilizing insurance so much on top of the fact that many insurances don't actually fully cover mental health services. It's gotten better because of some uh, policies that have been worked on specifically in our state. Um, but a lot of insurances really do not cover uh, mental health services at all or um, don't cover full cost of mental health services. Um, and so students are still paying upwards of $80, $90 uh, a therapy session, which is expensive for college students. Um, so I would say that's that's one of the main barriers in receiving um, help is affordability and accessibility. So I want to share a quick message from Lori on Facebook who mentioned the enormous stress on students of the cost of college and the cost of therapy, which is what you mentioned. And she also said colleges need to provide complete long-term regular therapy. Her student has bonded with a therapist on campus but used up her quota for the year, and her college is both isolated and hard to find transportation to a therapist. So I know you, uh, Alyeska, you uh, mentioned a lot of those points, and I'm wondering if you can just respond to that message, whether or not you agree, and what do you think the colleges can do to help sort of break down those barriers? I, I absolutely agree. I think the problem right now, especially I think the pandemic has offered us pros and cons. I think one of the pros, again, is it opens that door to the mental health um, services and kind of reevaluating what resources are offered. But at the same time, the pandemic has offered a lot of temporary resources. Um, and I think to echo that, uh, uh, statement of we really need to be providing long-term therapy services and care um, for students. You know, students pay a lot in tuition. Um, there's a lot more services I think that we can be putting that tuition towards to cover the cost of providing longer-term um, therapy and solutions. Uh, a lot of, again, putting hosting events and mental health awareness uh, sort of um, campaigns on campus are great and all, um, but having really what we need to look at is long-term uh, policies and systems that are put in place at college campuses. You know, not only are you providing therapy, but are you providing easy access when students are taking medical leaves of absence to come back easy and help them in that transition? Are you, um, you know, communicating with professors and helping students um, ensure that they're not falling behind in schoolwork when they are uh, struggling with a mental health crisis? Do you have emergency preparedness plans on campus when there's um, unfortunately a student loss? We talked about suicide loss earlier on campuses. Uh, do you, campuses have a place uh, to respond to that? Do they have the capacity to respond to that? Um, or when there is a mental health crisis happening on campus with a student, how are uh, universities responding to that, what's put in place to get the student the help and support that they need, not only therapy, but as doc, Dr. Pinkerton mentioned, what's the community life on campus? Are students feeling that they belong and have a support system within other aspects of the university? Um, so really digging in and reassessing the system as a whole of care and treatment and support for students, um, not just staffing 
therapists. Um, so I definitely think longevity uh, is very important and it's not so much being shown um, quite yet. I think we're starting conversations around mental health, um, but that longevity aspect is still something to be worked on. Um, Nick, I want to bring you back real quick. Um, we have a couple of minutes left, but I want you to respond to colleges needing to provide complete long-term regular therapy and if you have anything to respond to with uh, what uh, Alyeska said. Yeah, I think Alyeska made some excellent points, and I think it really does come down to a resource issue for the most part. It's, it's this question of what can we reasonably provide I mean, I'm extremely grateful as a therapist to be able to sit and meet with a student and talk about the most important aspects of their lives and give them 45 minutes of my undivided attention as we meet as human beings. And at the same time, that is very difficult to scale. There is only so many hours in the day. And so in order to provide more services, you need more therapists. Uh, and this question of how do we make the most of the resources that we have and what are what are ways that we can be creative and supportive around that? This uh, is something that I think college counseling uh, centers across the nation have been looking at uh, and is probably the single most important issue that we're, we're trying to address. I, I would say, again, my hope, my focus is at this point thinking about public health approaches. To this issue, as we know, this is this is something that's affecting so many students that we really need to be thinking about the conditions of mental health and support on campus and how we upskill the entire community to provide this kind of support and environment in addition to providing uh, counselors. Well, I want to thank Dr. Nick Pinkerton, who's an Associate Dean of Counseling Services and Wellbeing at Southern Connecticut State University, and Jennifer Rothman of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. We were also hearing from Alyeska Tilly, a UConn graduate student. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>